Hi, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark Gagne. I'm here with Trevor Clifford. How are you feeling today, Trevor? I feel pretty good. I feel like a, a spilled bottle of Pine Sol, lemony fresh. <laughs> I feel like a tollbooth operator at a Stargate. Whoa. What do, they, <laughs> what do they charge to go through a Stargate? I was going to ask you that. What do you think you could charge? Like, it's got to be a lot. Yeah, I mean, once once we establish societies in, on every Stargate so that we are charging tolls, it's going to be a pretty decent toll. I mean, yeah, you know, <laughs> how much does a puddle jumper cost? I don't know. The easy pass. <clears throat> Love to see. <laughs> Stargate easy pass. <laughs> yeah, so uh, for this week, I thought you know, new segment alert. Like, I guess we don't have like a, we need some like sound clips or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't <laughs> know segment. anything. I don't know anything about this new segment that Mark's about to intro. <laughs> yeah. So this week, you know, I thought we could talk about people that are just like us, but they're better. Um, Whoa. I guess I regret to inform you that the celebs are at it again. In, in addition to being rich and famous, some of them are also voracious readers. Um, so yeah. I, wanna, I got a question for you. I got a question. Okay. Who comes to mind? Who comes to mind when I say famous bookworm? Whew. Um, Celebrity bookworm. And they can't be an author. <laughs> uh, they could be. I mean, we. I mean, all authors read a lot. I mean, to be honest, I have to be fair. Even though I don't like him that much, when you said that, I thought of Neil Gaiman. Okay. Who is an author, but also in my book as much of a literary celebrity as he is an author because spoiler alert i think neil gaiman kind of sucks but he's definitely a famous bookworm mm -hmm. you know he uh he actually wrote the blurb for peace that gene wolf book that i covered earlier oh really yeah yeah so um yeah, I definitely know that he's definitely a big reader. I mean, Stephen King's a huge reader. He always tweets about what he's reading. But right. I was thinking about, you know, outside of, of authors, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so I got like, I threw together a little list here. Um, so the re very recently deceased uh, fashion designer, uh, Carl Lagerfeld. Okay. He, yeah. he had a library of like 300,000 plus books. He had like one of the craziest libraries. Yeah. Had. I love going on. I love I, I've done it before, you know, you go into like a Google wormhole of like the, the most impressive private libraries. Yeah, yeah. Because, you, you know, you always I always look up like cool libraries around the world or cool bookstores, but then you find ones where it's like people have like, you know, 10,000 volumes just like in their yeah, house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so also on my list, I had uh, LeBron James, like he reads a lot. But he's mostly, most of the time he reads The Godfather by like Mario Puzo. He reads that like... <laughs> Over and over, it's like a good motivation tool for him. Um, I heard somewhere, read somewhere that Reese Witherspoon's a big bookhead. Okay. Uh, pretty sure that Elon Musk, he likes, he reads a lot, or he reads a lot of like hardcore sci-fi stuff, like Isaac Asimov, I'm pretty uh -huh. sure. Um, I wonder if he, there, I, I don't really know too much about it, but I do know that there's a genre of science fiction called like hard science fiction or something like that, and it has to do with like... Um, you know, there are like authors out there who kind of like extrapolate on current mathematical and scientific theories and then make it like fictional. Oh, like real science. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's called like hard science fiction or something like that. I guess maybe Elon Musk is reading that. Okay. I've, I've read something like 
in those in that kind of vein like the three body problem it's like a series um that one's that one's cool um hmm. anyways more like bookworms there's that annoying like youtube advertisement guy have you seen that like ty lopez he does like he's like i read a book a day and he's like standing in front of his ferrari <clears throat> It's no, like, <laughs> um, there's um, your YouTube is more literary than mine, I guess. Yeah, there's uh, Emma Roberts, who is a uh, she's from American Horror Story, that show. But she's okay. also like the niece of Julia Roberts. Mm -hmm. uh, she has an online book club called uh, Bellatrist or yeah. Beltrist. Well, I guess you could say Oprah is a famous. She has her book club, right? Yeah, she was on my list, too. Uh, Oprah. Oprah. Yeah. You got James Franco pretending to read. <laughs> uh, Bill, uh, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. I mean, Bezos started by selling books. I, I like assume he's a big reader or whatever. Not anymore. Uh, he's like too. He's too. Like he's busy like flying all of his helicopters. But yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. Bill Gates is it? He he does like a he releases a a reading list, right? He he has like once yeah. a year he does like a reading list. Yeah, I think Obama um, too. I think the, the, yeah, I was gonna say the Obamas both do that. Yeah. Um, so okay. Moving on from that, uh, so I, I was doing some research and stuff. Like now, I have an important question for you. That's mm -hmm. just kind of from left field. Uh, what are your thoughts on Simon and Garfunkel? Um, much respect for being able to write hooks, but not coming up in my everyday uh, playlist. Okay. Okay. Um, <sighs> so yeah, I wanted to bring up this topic because. I randomly came across Art Garfunkel's website while doing this research. Okay. And it turns out he's a prolific reader. Okay. Which, you know, was a little crazy to find out because it's kind of weird. Like I already had sort of a literary connection in my head with him. Uh -huh. um, have you ever, you ever seen like the animated version of Watership Down? The movie from like the 70s? Yeah, I can't say that I've sat there and seen the whole thing, but I remember the poster and I've definitely seen clips and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it has one of his songs in it. It's got that song, uh, Bright Eyes. It's like a really fucking sad song. Right. Uh, I'll, throw, I'll throw that the link up for that song on Twitter after this for whatever reason. But it, anyways, like uh, he's he was also in the movie for Catch-22, which I didn't know until oh, looking okay. this up. But... So this shit's crazy. Um, on his website, he has kept a list of literally every book he's read since the since June of 1968. <laughs> okay. He he has cataloged the last 50 years of his reading. Damn, that's something that we need to do. I, like honestly, yeah. in preparation for this podcast, I'm like, I don't think we're ever gonna actually run out of books. But sometimes I'm thinking to myself, and I'm like. I'm just going to run out of, you know, like ones that I've read or like, or, you know, I almost think too, like, it's pretty crazy that I think that there's probably books that I've read that I have completely forgotten, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't, it, I don't think the well ever runs dry based on uh, art, arts experience. And I'm going to, I'm going to get into this. It, it was really crazy for me to discover. Um, and it, you know, it's completely up to date. Mm -hmm. It shows every book up to the end of 2018. Okay. So, you know, like being the way I am, I went through, I copied all the data over to Excel. I chopped it up. I did some analysis on it. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> over 50 years from are when you, he was. Are you trying to catch Art Garfunkel in a lie? 
Like, is this going to no, be no, like no. mathematically impossible that he read all these? <laughs> no, no, it's it's more like no, no I'll, I'll get into it. It's um, <laughs> it's more like I want to like meet him now. Um, mm-hmm. anyways, okay. From when he was twenty six and a half to now, where uh, at the age of seventy seven, he's mm-hmm. read twelve or one thousand two hundred and eighty one books. Whoa. Okay. He's got an average of twenty five point six two books per year, mm-hmm. so that's half a half a book a week, mm-hmm. you know, seven percent a day. But it's just the consistency that's so damn impressive, you know. Yeah, those are like Hall of Fame numbers. He's like Cal Ripken, Iron Man. He's like a reading legend. Yeah, that's pretty intense reading. <laughs> yeah, uh, I made a line graph in Excel that tracked his like books per year, how many pages. <laughs> And he just, he, he completely, he completely went off in the mid eighties. He read like 50 books in 1984. Damn. Uh, he read like four, almost 14,000 pages. In Dude, you definitely have to expose this guy on Twitter. You have to, you have to like put all this analysis out into the world and be like this guy. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to post a ton about it. Um, so he just, you, you know, you name it, he's read it. He's read the Bible. He's read the Quran. He claims to have read the dictionary in 1991. That's the only one that where I'm like, are you sure? Are you? Are you? Are you yeah. Are you like sure you sat us? there and read the dictionary? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, he he's read uh, Paul Simon's biography. He's read um, six books that were a thousand pages plus. Mm-hmm. Only um, six. Come on, bro. <laughs> well, he's read a, he's read a few that were like 900. All right. All right. He, he's not a he's no he's no chump um to mention books that we've covered here on the podcast he's read Ooh. jude the obscure he's, he's read on the road he's read uh the decline and fall of the roman empire i wow. mean he hasn't read decline and fall of practically everybody but he read the uh inspiration for it the roman that's like uh, an epic like isn't that like a big like reader's accomplishment to read that whole thing isn't it like so oh, many yeah. pages yeah that's like reading a full history te- textbook or something mm-hmm. Um, for Mishima, he's read Spring Snow and Runaway Horses, but he has not read Confessions of a Mask. Oh, that's interesting. interesting. That like that sounds like he read. That's like half of the the four book series. Spring Snow yeah. and, and Runaway Horses is half of his final work. Okay, he, he's made a lot of like questionable choices like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but first, you know, he has a clear interest in the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, he's read Rousseau's Confessions three times. That's the only one I saw that was like a repeat. Hmm. It was the uh, the first book on the list, the 252nd book and the 1,000th book. Whoa. <laughs> um, he's read all of uh, Proust's In Search of Lost Time or Remembrance of Things Past. Oh, now, now I got to talk to him. He's read all five over the course of 13 years. Okay. So he like picked, he picked one up every couple of years. That's the way um, to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I have a few bones to pick with him. He has a, a list of favorites. Like if you go check it out, it's just Art Garfunkel library. Just Google that. Yeah. Um, so he's got a pretty big list of favorites, it's like 170 books, but he's got like, he's got Bukowski on there. He's got Jonathan Franzen. Uh, he liked Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> um, is that on the top list? Uh, there's a there's a list of favorites. I mean, if you go through like, so this dude's read. He's read twelve hundred books, and one of his favorites is Fifty Shades. 
one of his 170 favorites. So, you know, All right. it's, it's a lot. Here's, here's a really insane one, though. He read The Shining in 1977. Mm-hmm. He listed it as a favorite, but then he never read another book by Stephen King. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on. He's a re- if anybody's a repeat author, King is a repeat author. <laughs> <laughs> um, same story. He read the first Harry Potter book in 2001 and stopped there. Dude, not cool. <laughs> he read a he read a Confederacy of Dunces. Did not list it as a favorite. Okay, <laughs> that's really that's own. weird that he read half of Mishima and then also part of Harry Potter. Like what? What are you doing, dude? Yeah, no, he he's all he's all over the fucking place. Um, he read his own book of prose poetry called Stillwater in 1989. All right. Um, I, and you know what? I think. What, what I was thinking about with this is that it's interesting to see like a historical reading catalog such as this mm-hmm. because you can overlay it with, you know, what happened in the world at that time. Like, I think you and like all our listeners would agree that like what you're currently reading can totally affect your worldview or it's something that you're reading in response to something that's happening in your world or like in like current events, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking when you were talking about um, him reading Mishima. I was like, I wonder if like Mishima had either recently died or like or was in the news for some reason or was publicly. Yeah. Well, um, uh, he has, I think in the in the 80s when he was like the most prolific as far as like his reading goes. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed to be like right after a period when his longtime girlfriend had committed suicide. And so he was in like a very kind of, wow. he was he stepped away from like the uh, public eye for, for a while. Dude, you're going to be able to got. write like a biography, like a biography via literature of Art Garfunkel. Okay. Yeah. So, so check this out. <laughs> um, I, I was like, okay, what's a significant event that I can like analyze? So mm-hmm. the, one of the first ones I thought of was 9-11. Right. So ch- check, this, check this out. Like, this is, this is crazy. Um, September 2001, like early September, he was reading Virginia Woolf, The Waves. Right. For no reason, you know. Um, and then right after that, presumably after September 11th, yeah, he was reading this, book, reading this book called Understanding War by Peter Parrott. Right. From 1992. Yes. Obviously, I, <laughs> obviously something happened. Yeah. Obviously something happened. Yeah. He was like, I, I can't like deal with this. Yes. So then he switched when he finished that. Uh, so now we're in October. He read uh, Jeeves in the Morning by uh, P.G. Wodehouse. So like he went to like a comedy. He was like, OK, this war, war stuff's too crazy. Mm-hmm. Like I need to relax with something funny or whatever. Shit. Um, so then after that, December... He's reading this book that I hadn't heard of before, but it's called Jihad versus McWorld. Okay, yeah. So he's, you know, freaking yeah. out again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, yeah, it's so good. <laughs> and then, okay, right after that one is when he read Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So he was like, I need an escape. He, he He's bouncing back. At, he's like, yeah. he's like 9-11. I, I, I don't understand it. Now, now I need to get take a break. Then back into <laughs> back into, you know world warfare and then back it and then like bouncing back to harry potter yeah <laughs> it's crazy right and then okay right after harry potter he was like okay i uh 
I need to, you know, find my bearings again. And he reads The Universe in a Nutshell by Stephen Hawking. Oh my god, yeah. You're like we're <laughs> like we're on the emotional journey of Garfunkel. Yeah. You know what I keep thinking too is like I don't see Garfunkel as somebody who knows how to manage his own website. So I'm also like thinking of the person that he like emails or like calls on the phone. It's like add to my yeah. book list. <laughs> <laughs> his webmaster. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I was going to ask you maybe if you could think of like a significant event from the last 50 years where we could like take a look at it and see. But, you know, maybe this can become a recurring segment like, you know. Significant moments in history. Yeah, when, when, our, when our, what our was Garfunkel reading during Watergate? <laughs> yeah, yeah, or like the Berlin Wall, or yeah. like Y2K or whatever. Y2K. <laughs> he's, he's like, there's just one month where he has like how to survive in the woods or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think this is something. It's something we should revisit. You know, maybe we'll ask uh, some our listeners like uh, an, an event we can go check out, or if they see some some interesting patterns yeah it's amazing it's process. like it, like i want to look up what he was reading when i was born and like you know all that stuff that's yeah. awesome can can you actually look up his website right now just just google um our garfunkel library and yeah. um i want i want to i want don't dive too deep just go to like the homepage. yeah because to like wrap this this segment up i want to mention something though uh so i can get your reaction to okay so on his website there's a I'm, picture I'm of right him here Yep. There's a picture of him in his library. Do you see it? It's when he's like He's younger. just standing in front of the uh, a bookcase, yeah. Yes, okay, okay. But it's a crop photo, but you can see some of his bookshelves. Everything's wrapped in cellophane. And yes, it looks like most of his books are in big plastic sleeves, like they're a rare comic book or like a vinyl record, and that's a psycho move. Yeah, dude. Maybe he, maybe, it's no, not. I don't know. Does he like collect first <laughs> editions or maybe he's just like psychotic about like the, like uh, the preservation of his books? I don't know, man. It, it's not like like if you look at it, it's not an air it's not an airtight like Declaration of Independence like thing. It's just a plastic bag. Yeah, that's it, just strictly for dust. Yeah, well, he's he's into keeping his books pristine. I guess so. I, mean, I wonder I if he's one of those guys who has. Um, I wonder if he has like a, a sign out sheet. Ooh, July two thousand nine. He read Zadie Smith. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, I I have a, a huge Excel sheet that I like. I highlighted a bunch of All right, so stuff from now on, we cross-reference all things back to Garfunkel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and we can check in on him from time to time, see what he's reading in 2019. Yeah, for sure. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Oh, in, in June 2017, he uh, he read uh, The Art of the Deal by everyone's favorite <laughs> Donald Trump. See? See? Yeah, yeah. He had to, like, try and understand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's like one year. At, like, that's one year of the of the Trump presidency. So he's like, what the fuck? I got to read whatever this asshole is like thinking. Yeah. Yeah. See? So there's a lot of stuff we can uh, we can look through the lens of Garfunkel's yeah. library. <laughs> that's so funny. It's a gold mine. It yeah. is a gold mine. You struck. You struck literary gold. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we'll return to that for sure. Yes. Okay. So now for the book reports. All right. Yes. Um, is it, it? You're going first, right? Are you going first? Yeah. Okay. I have been talking a lot on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Exhausting. Um, yeah. Okay. So here we go. Uh, 
so you know i've talked about the like mad max batman tom hardy and you know i've talked about the jude the obscure return of the native thomas hardy and the dilemma of public figures with identical names right well this week i have a sort of a similar story but this time they're actually both authors um you know ralph waldo emerson i do writer writer yeah writer philosopher poet transcendentalist buddies with uh henry david thoreau Mm -hmm. uh so the book i have wait was it thoreau that that wrote walden uh, if you put me on the spot like that, I'm going to give you the wrong answer. So let's say yes. And yes. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the book I have this week is from Ralph Waldo Ellison. Okay. Who was actually named after Emerson, and I never noticed because I didn't know his middle name. Okay. Um, so there's all, I'm, of course, talking about the book Invisible Man. Okay, and Invisible Man. I've been... I've been torn on including this on the podcast because it's, you know, it's one of the best books I've read. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm fairly confident that I won't be able to conjure even a semi-original thought about it because, you know, it's been read many, many times. And, you know, it's part of uh, classes on literature and mm-hmm. it's in the curriculum of schools and stuff. But, you know, due to, like, the sheer creative intelligence on display in this book, I, I had to, you know, at least give it a shot. Mm-hmm. So bear with me. <clears throat> so about the man himself first, you know, Ellison, he was born in 1914 in Oklahoma City, lost his father at a very young age due to like a freak accident involving a hundred pound chunk of ice, like being lo- loaded, loaded into an industrial hopper. He was like crushed or, uh, you know, lacerated or something. Freak accident. Um, he graduated from high school in 1931. Uh, went to the uh, Tuskegee Institute, an all-black university in Alabama, founded by Booker T. Washington. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at this prestigious school, he felt like an outsider, but it's, you know, where he discovered his love for literature and, you know, developed his unique style as a writer. Um, he cites T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, and uh, also uh, Tom Hardy's Jude the Obscure, again, um, James Joyce and Gertrude Stein as his main influences. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good list right there. It's a good list. I got to yeah. read this Jude the Obscure. It keeps coming up. Dude, it's awesome. Um, it's Yeah, it's, make sure you're prepared for that. It's sad <laughs> and horrifying sometimes. <laughs> you might have to do the Art Garfunkel and just like sandwich it in between two like nice yeah. happy books. <laughs> call that the art from now on um so there's a really interesting quote on his wikipedia uh from the paris review regarding ernest hemis ernest hemingway Mm -hmm. um so check this out like he says i read him to learn his sentence structure and how to organize a story i guess many young writers were doing this but i also used his description of hunting when i went into the fields the next day i had been hunting since i was 11 but no one had broken down the process of wing shooting for me and it was from reading Hemingway that I learned to lead a bird. When he describes something in print, believe him. Believe him even when he describes the process of art in terms of baseball or boxing. He's been there. Hmm. So, you know, there are endless amounts of quotes and opinions about Hemingway, but I had never heard that take before. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. It, yeah, it's that feeling of le- of legitimacy. Like when you yeah, hear something cool. like that, it's like, you know, because the sun also rises, it's all about bullfighting and stuff. 
Yeah, you know, it comes from real experience. Mm-hmm. So I think, like, you know, he he did a, he had a lot of that too. Like, I, I believe, you know, when he talks about stuff. Um, anyways, Ellison eventually left college. He moved to Harlem, and he got involved in both the literary and political circles of uh, Langston Hughes and Richard Wright. And okay, I think uh, yeah. Richard Wright, he was like a you know great author on his own with like Native yeah, Son. Yeah, Native Son. That, so. Yeah, that book is awesome. Yeah, so he was the one, I think, who nudged Ellison towards writing Invisible Man. Uh, so he wrote this book over the course of several years, I guess, during medical leave from the Merchant Marines. So it was published in 1952, and it won the U.S. National Book Award for fiction. It was very like highly praised on its uh, release. Mm-hmm. So the book itself, Invisible Man, it's super dense. It's about a whole bunch of things, uh, identity, freedom, racism, individualism. Uh, I'd say it has one of the most direct and powerful uses of like a narrative voice that I can think of. And uh, at the start of this book, the narrator introduces his life as a man who has become invisible to the world through his experiences. And we learn about the events in his life where he has been misunderstood or stereotyped or betrayed or dehumanized. And uh, it begins with him as a teenager in the South where he is, you know, his high school is valedictorian and he wins a scholarship to an all black college. So Mm -hmm. it's some of it mirrors his own life. Yeah. Um, There's a very early scene that is famous for its symbolism and also famous for its brutality known as the battle Royale where the narrator believes he is invited to give a speech and receive his scholarship in front of some of the town's white dignitaries. But instead he's forced into participating in this like horrifying blindfolded brawl spectacle, just purely for their entertainment. Okay. You know, he's, he's beaten badly and he's only able to give his speech at the end with his face all wounded and he's choking on his own blood and they laugh at him for his mistakes in reciting his speech that they, you know, set him up to have. Whoa. Um, this is like so Paul imagine, Beatty shit. Yes. Um, I imagine there are a good amount of people who don't make it past this early chapter because it's it's very brutal. Um, but I don't really want to go too far into the plot itself um, because uh, so much happens in this book. But the rest of the book, it follows the narrator through many of his stressful and painful experiences of racism and isolation across different communities and societies. Uh, the story is intense and it's, it's really intricately woven in a way that makes me wonder if Pynchon read it or rather like how many times he read it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We need, we need in every book that Pynchon has read library. Take a, take a note out of Art Garfunkel's book. (laughs) <laughs> he keeps a list somewhere yeah even if it's just a mental list we just got to get it out of him um i guess you know instead of diving instead of just trying to cover the plot i mean a lot of people have, have read this book uh, i guess i just want to touch on a few th- specific things that have remained with me since i first read this book like many years ago um it was the first book that i really kind of studied you know like it felt like a step up to heavier sort of reading mm-hmm. you know that feeling when you're like you keep like a pencil nearby and you're marking up the book and you know, you're yeah taking, sure. taking note of things and, and yeah. highlighting spots to revisit and stuff. 
You mean so intensely was... since the beginning of this podcast? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can't read without a pen anymore. Oh, yeah. I need to uh, have uh, like eight bookmarks just in case there's a quote I want to mm. grab. Um, okay. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about is just talking about how this book is just loaded with meaning and symbolism. Like right off the bat in the prologue, the narrator introduces his life and his space where he ended up after all of his dehumanizing experiences where he has, you know, lost his identity and become invisible. Mm-hmm. So his literally, home, literally invisible. I mean, yes and no. Okay. Um, there, there's kind of a lot of stuff going on in the book where people do not see him literally. So yes and no, but he also interacts with other people. So, but it's, it's like more of like a process of this happening and eventually he's invisible because he's isolated. Um, so his room is an underground room that is very much off the grid and he like introduces us to it. But at the same time, it's wired with over a thousand electric lights mm-hmm. and he powers these lights using electricity stolen from the monopolated light utility. Okay. In an, in an effort to battle with them for them overcharging black neighborhoods for their electricity. Okay, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot to unpack there. And I find it interesting personally from my perspective of working in energy. Right. And, you know, this battle that he's waging underground is highlighting like a real issue that, you know, still exists today with things mm-hmm. like energy poverty and the imbalance of resources for essential utilities, like what's happening in Flint, Michigan, with their water. Mm-hmm. Um, do Dude, you know Paul about Beattie, the concept? Paul Beatty has to have read this guy. Oh, a- absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's it's very widely read. Yeah. Um, do you know about the concept of energy poverty? Uh, not really. I mean, I like it. Sounds like the concept of like food poverty, kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically lack of access to modern energy services due to right. prohibitive costs or, you know, the area that you live in. It's the same sort of thing of like, like, yeah, mm-hmm. like you said, with food poverty, when you... Uh, food where, security, where that's you, like a thing that you see. Yeah, in there, food yeah. Security. Uh, I think the technical term for energy poverty is when you're spending like a certain percentage of your income, like maybe over 10% on energy related expenses, mm-hmm. you know, things that are basically essential in modern life. It's like the fuel to heat your home is attached to a price, but the type of heating system you have affects what you pay for something that basically keeps you alive. Mm -hmm. You know, electric heating is expensive. People who rent, they don't get to choose where their heat comes from. Amen, Uh, brother. In the same vein. Yeah. (laughs) In the same vein, like a fuel-efficient car is expensive, energy-efficient Appliances are expensive, so, I mean, it's prohibitive to save money on energy. Um, There are a lot of things about being poor that are expensive. Um, Right. And, you know, it's it's tilted towards continuing to be poor. Yeah. Like, the issues usually compound. Like, you know, someone's health can be affected by poor working conditions or working multiple jobs or long hours. And even just the stress of poverty can result in, you know, expenses like medical bills yeah. when it like destroys your body. There's an economic concept behind that too. Like, like 
a lot of our economy you'll start to notice if you like really think about it is like based on paying up front like you save so much money if you can have more money to start with yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) so yeah rent a center shit rent a center yeah being poor kind of like compact like everything that they're paying for is like more than they're slightly like or if you were slightly more well off you'd be paying less for it yeah yeah like you know i've been rambling a little bit but i think like the battle that the narrator has in this book with the light company it also symbolizes something bigger which is kind of what you're you've started to talk about like the transfer of power that occurs when anything is modernized like the transfer of power under the guise of modernization like if you think of nowadays with internet service providers like that for example you know there are systems in place which just about require that you have internet access in order to oh yeah definitely there's a i think i i can't verify this i mean it's an easy google search but I've heard before that access to broadband is like uh, like a like a basic human right in one of the Scandinavian countries, either like Norway or Sweden or something like that. They like they pass through their government that access to broadband internet is like a is a human right. Yeah, I mean, like so much is built off of that now, and you know. Yeah. It's- I was thinking about this. You can charge whatever they want. We're not really talking about your book anymore, but. <laughs> I was talking. <laughs> I well, well, that, that's I, part of my point. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day too, about how there was there was a time I think, especially when the internet was early in the early internet, when you almost felt like the like making statements on the internet like wasn't a real thing. You know, like when we were teenagers yeah. and you could post on forums, and you know, I think also during this current presidency, like when. Like it was very, it was very immediate when all of a sudden, like Twitter was like the most important thing in the world for statements to be coming yeah. out, and it's it's, yeah. it's it's an interesting shift where it's like, yeah, like what you put online is like the statement to the world. Like there's no yeah. going around that. No, there's you know, there's no disconnection now. You yeah. have you own up to what you say, and you know people can, they know who you are or whatever. Like, yeah. um, but it's also another another thing I saw recently. Uh, I saw an article about like some businesses that are trying to convert to strictly debit and credit card purchases only. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, cashless, know, yep. That, yeah, that's modernization, but it blocks out those who might only have access to cash, like the homeless. Like, you know, it, it has yeah. those sort of effects. And No, yeah, I uh, there in the UK, um, I've mentioned on the podcast before that I lived in the UK for two years, and they're probably a little bit closer to attempting a, a cashless society. Um, there's a lot of like when you go to New York City or certain places in the US it's it almost there are areas of it that thrive on cash and that but in the UK yeah. it's almost like the opposite where there's areas where you can't even use cash um mm-hmm. but yeah i think there, there there's, there's definitely some uh grapes of wrath style problems that will happen in America once they try to make things cashless because sometimes yeah. that's just yeah. what money is <laughs> i mean yeah so essentially like what I was, I guess, getting to with all this is like a lot of times what's called progress and modernization can push down costs, but like those cost savings are mostly for people who can afford to keep up with the modernization. Right. But anyway, you know, this whole discussion, the last couple of minutes was just me expanding on something from the first page of the prologue. Whoa. <laughs> okay. Yeah. My point is that this is just the sort of book where you can really dive into it that way. Like, there's a lot of things that spurn like research and you know you go down like a wormhole that sort of thing like a wikipedia looking stuff up on wikipedia and mm-hmm. all that 
Um, so that was that section just, you know, from the prologue. But another thing I guess I wanted to talk about is just the focus on fate and determinism, like explored by Ellison a lot in this book, but very specifically in the sections about what what's called the numbers game. And this is a reference. So it happens in the book, but it's a reference to illegal gambling that originated in poor and working class neighborhoods in the U.S. Mm-hmm. where you could place a bet in like a local lottery and try and pick the day's three digit number. Yep. So people could place bets with individuals called runners at like bars or social clubs or just on the street if you knew hmm. who to talk to. And it was appealing because you could bet on credit. And also like, you know, if you won, it would be under the table and you could avoid paying income tax. Right. But, you know, obviously these games were rigged in favor of the groups that operated them. <laughs> um, they were nicknamed they were nicknamed policies because of their similarities to like cheap insurance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, it was it was set up in their favor, like the racketeering or whatever, where the payout was like 600. But every time, you know, the people who were operating it made a bunch of money, no matter who won if, or if they rigged it. Uh, so like one of the interesting things about the numbers game and like the history is how they chose a random number. Uh, so like ping pong balls and roulette wheels could be fixed. So it, it evolved over time into random numbers based on things from like the newspaper. So like the last three digits of the number of shares traded on the stock exchange that day was mm-hmm. like the number or, you know, like the U S treasury, what they ended at for the day, that sort of thing. Hmm. And, uh, so there's a ton of fucking horrible irony in that. Um, but at one point in the book, there is an actual case of mistaken identity uh, which is really clever because it's like a literal occurrence of something that is up to that point one of the book's strongest themes. Mm-hmm. But at one point, the narrator is confused with one of the uh, prevalent runners in Harlem, and he like learns about the whole system. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really interesting. Just the, another thing that just spurred me to like you know do some research and find out. Like, That's like a co- it's like it's a really cool concept of something that is probably completely gone i mean you may, might be able to find some like local lotteries and stuff like that but it also it's funny because as you were describing it i was like that sounds insanely tempting like if i knew like <laughs> about something like that and i was like wait only like 50 people are participating like that is like so much more tempting than the lottery like like yeah. the, the, the lottery <laughs> the modern lottery so um it's interesting there's like a similar theme Uh, to this in one of Ellison's short stories from before Invisible Man from uh, 1944, which is called King of the Bingo Game. And uh, I only have read like the synopsis of this this short story, but I need to go read it. But it sounds very interesting. It's like the, it's a story where the main character is placing all of his hopes on a game of chance, sort of like roulette. And, you know, he decides to take control of fate Mm -hmm. by just keeping the wheel spinning for as long as he can. So he's, you know, (laughs) deferring deferring the judgment and standing outside of fortune itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously he can't keep it spinning forever. Um, so yeah, I really want to check that out. Uh, I don't have much else to say as, you know, I kind of just wanted to expand on some of the smaller sections, but I guess to wrap it up, Invisible Man, it's relentless and you'll think about it forever. Well, yeah. 
That sounds, I mean, like you said, it, it just like dive into subject after subject. after. It sounds like the type of book, like when you put it down, then you open up your phone and you're like, okay, now to like fully understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's been awesome. a lot, lot of analysis on it. You can, you can, you know, really dive in. Cool. That was awesome. Good job. Thanks. Crazy. Um, all right. So I'll, I'll dive right into mine. Um, Mine is a bit of a gear shift. This is, um, my author is a living author. He is extremely fun to follow. Um, I'm following my theme of, um, well, I guess we've done, we've done a few Japanese novelists. You did Banana Yoshimoto. I did, mm-hmm. um, I did, uh, Mishima, Mishima obviously. And, and Desai. Uh, Desai, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. No Longer Human. Uh, I'll reiterate if no one's checked that book out, go read No Longer, drop what you're doing right now and read No Longer Human. Um, but my author this month is, is definitely one of my current favorite living authors. He's insanely fun to follow. And um, I'm starting with one of his, well, basically his most recent book, because some of the other stuff, some of his other classics, I I don't want to tackle until I reread having uh, the context of the podcast. But um, today I'm doing... I know know who it is. You know who, yeah, you know who it is. Um, Today I'm doing uh, Haruki Murakami and his most recent novel, uh, Killing Commentadore. Um... I'm pr- I'm going to be saying Killing Commentadore a lot in this uh, podcast. Number one, I will say that I don't like the title and I don't like how I have to say the title. I almost oh. feel <laughs> I almost feel like there might be a possibility that even the translation of the title is like not super solid. I think that that's really, really? <laughs> I mean, I, th- I feel like that's really insulting to the um, the brilliant work of who translated it, which is Philip Gabriel and Ted Goosen. But and Philip Gabriel has translated a lot of his works. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that the I don't think that the actual translation is wrong. I think that maybe Murakami is a very interesting guy. I'm going to talk about him a little bit, and I'm also going to talk about how he like doesn't give a shit about anything. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so does, it work? does it work if you just call it KC, or is that like KC really relevant <laughs> to the? Um, <laughs> it's not super relevant. No. Um, so I can explain the title, but Killing Commentadore. I also think that in a weird way, um, maybe my dislike of the title is almost too connected with um, the release of a book nowadays in 2019 um just because um you know let's get into a little bit of murakami but basically murakami my impression of him is that he's one of the most popular uh um authors in the world right now and certainly in japan Uh, i think i've seen a few articles and stuff like that like when his book 1q84 was coming out which is also a really great book um you know he's the type of author where there's lines around the block until midnight you know what I mean? Like, like, like that you always see like photos in Japan of them coming out. And there's also another factor in that. I think that it makes it kind of fun and interesting to follow his career is that everything comes out in Japanese first. So this book that mm-hmm. I'm reporting on today is his most recent novel. It was originally published in Japanese in 2017. And then as a, as an insanely fab, uh, rabid Murakami fan, which I am, and I think a lot of his American fans are, 
you just got to wait until it comes out. You just have, you know, there's no, I mean, I'm sure that the, the people who translate Murakami, like Philip, Philip Gabriel and Ted Goosen, who did this book, they're under a lot of pressure. Because when a new Murakami comes out in Japan, there's millions of people ready to buy the translation here in America. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm sure that the publishers are just like, you know, cracking the whip. And that's hard. Like, and I don't think, I really don't think, like, I should step back my earlier statement. Like, Killing Commentadore is not a mistranslation. I'm sure it's an accurate translation. And there's really not... Um, you know, there's nothing in these books that I that I as I'm reading, I say, oh, I don't think that that was translated correctly or anything like that. But there is a tension with with a with a Murakami release, and I'm guilty of it as well. Every time a Murakami comes out in Japan, especially a new novel, because the way that the industry is around him now, they've actually been sort of mining his his back catalog for English translations ever since he became yeah. insanely popular in the US. So like in between, so, uh, you know, um, first of all, I can say that he is a, you know, very prolific author, especially with short stories, um, things that will come out in different magazines and different collections in between. He has a few short story collections. Um, he also has two nonfiction books and uh, I don't know how many novels, but it's more than 10. And um you know, people are really hungry for his translations in English. So, you know, in between um, his his last novel from 2013, Colorless Tsuzuru Tazaki and his Years of Pilgrimage, which is also a great title to say over and over. I'm glad I'm not reporting <laughs> on that book. Uh, you can call that one colorless, though. That's easy. Okay. Um, in between that, that was in 2013, and now it's you know 2017 is when this novel came out. In between them, they like republished like two of his early novels here, The Wind Sing and Pinball 1973. They also came out with like l like they they're so hungry to publish. Sometimes I feel like they almost like. Um, they publish really short stuff like there was one called the vanishing library or something like that that was a short story that they literally just like made it oh the strange library um is literally and it, it was an illustrated children's book and they just made it large print and bound it as a book and they were like this is a new murakami book so you know like when i saw it on the shelf i picked it up and i read it it took me like 40 minutes to read and i was like this is not a new murakami book like you're trying you're trying no. too hard yeah, no, I remember, I remember because this one's so recent, I remember you talking about, you had an interesting story about how you, didn't you get this like before, like a day before people? Or yeah, something? I had mentioned on the podcast before, that was actually his oh, yeah, 2013 yeah. novel, Colorless Tsukuru Tazaki oh, and His Years okay. of Pilgrimage. that wasn't this one. Yeah, I was freaking out because I went camping in Maine and I went to a small like family owned bookstore. And I had, I had the edition that came out a day before its official American release. So I was oh. like, I was like, I felt like I'm on top of the world, like, uh, you know, whatever. Um, but let's take a step back and just talk about Murakami in general. He was born in 1949. He's age 70 at this point. Um, obviously, like I've been talking about, he's a Japanese writer. He's very decorated with lots of awards the world fantasy award frank o'connor international short story awards the Fran kafka prize he's also won the jerusalem prize so i probably discovered murakami i think from probably his most famous american novel is the wind-up bird, bird chronicle which um yep. is uh, you know he won a bunch of japanese literary awards for that book and it's just basically uh another encyclopedic very amazing um narrative um 
And, you know, he's he over and over pretty much every year, whenever there's a Nobel Prize for literature about to happen, he's shortlisted every time and he never wins every time. So um, (laughs) that's something that I feel like is almost like on the vert, like coming up in his career or something like that. Um, Murakami, uh, before I dive into the plot of Killing Commentador, um, Murakami is a really interesting guy. Basically, if you read his um, perspectives on writing and his perspectives on life, um, he basically, he kind of has, he has like a biography that like, winds and whines like all over the place and it actually is he's very influenced by western literature um he references things like franz kafka uh kurt vonnegut dostoevsky he's a huge fan of dostoevsky jack kerouac um so yeah his characters are always reading and listening to music yeah and eating yeah for and sure it's always inter- it's always interesting to you know Hear the pairings and and all, all sorts of stuff like that. And, yeah, what have you read? What stuff. what have you read? Like I've read Wind, Wind Up Bird. Yeah. Uh, I've read Dance Dance Dance. Yep. And Norwegian Wood. Yep. Norwegian Wood is awesome. And it's got to be something else like Kafka on the Shore. Have you read that? No, I have not. Dude, you got to read. That's my favorite one. You got to read Kafka on the Shore. It's so good. But Wind Up Bird is, you know, you know enough just from know, like having read Wind Up Bird, you know, his yeah. classic characters. And and there's a lot of kind of autobiographical stuff, I think, that goes into his main characters. It's always, you know, some bland Japanese male who is either has always been single or is recently single. And, um, you know, he's he's cooking food, drinking beer, trying to figure out life like that is what's going on in every Murakami book with at least one character probably the main one um yeah (laughs) and you know there's that kind of constant um narrative going on in murakami's books i like to think too there's almost like a weird part of me that thinks that um murakami all of his novels almost to me happen in the same universe like you know how stephen king has like the connection of um the dark tower like everything kind of goes back to the dark tower there's a lore there's a lot of like i'm projecting that onto his books but there's a lot of repeated themes like for instance um in the wind up bird chronicle a huge part of that book is that um one of the characters sits at the bottom of an empty well like as almost like a form of meditation but also a form of like self-flagellation and that imagery also comes up in killing commentadori there's they uncover like an empty sort of ancient well and then one of the characters like sits in it overnight and is kind of like trying to solve his problems by sitting at the bottom of a well so it's sort of like there's a lot of repeated imagery um cats are in his books a lot and stuff like that so there's always like these kind of weird connecting themes um so one thing that I think is really cool about Murakami too, that goes back into that kind of solid character that he always has, and I think is really interesting about his biography, is that I do know I don't know a ton about his life. Um, I don't want to exhaust our listeners with you know his whole biography, but I do know that at one point in his life, he basically had a switch go off in his head where he was like he was 
he owned a small jazz club. I know that. So that's why he's always referencing music and a lot of jazz <laughs> and stuff like that. And I, I do know, know at, at a certain point when he was, first of all, he's sort of reclusive. So he doesn't give many interviews. If you type Haruki Murakami, I mean, if you type, yeah, um, Haruki Murakami interview into YouTube, you won't find one because there aren't any. Um, especially on video. I mean, there's a few like press conferences and him like accepting awards and stuff like that. Um, but as far as I can tell, he w- he owned a jazz club and he and it wasn't until his like mid or late thirties that he started writing novels. And basically, I think he said he was like at a at a baseball game one day and he was just like, I'm just gonna go start writing books. And he hasn't stopped since. <laughs> so basically some switch flipped in his head um he has a great book that i haven't read yet but i really definitely should read it called what i talk about when i talk about running he's also a pro i was gonna say i know he's a big runner yeah Yeah. he's also a huge prolific runner he claims to run um a 10k every day in between writing sessions um a big kind of thing in his life and something that I think a lot of people take away from being a fan of his is that he's really into repetition. So basically he's like, listen, I accomplished all my dreams by saying, I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to run. Then I'm going to do this every single day, no matter what, that's what I do. (laughs) And, uh, you can see the results because a lot of his books are insanely huge. Um, Kellen Comentadore is here. Let me open up my edition here is 600,000. 681 pages. Uh, the last 1,000 page book that he came out with, I think, is the Collected 1Q84, which was originally published as four sections, but then got stitched together for, for some uh, publishing markets. Um, also a good book. Um, something. The last thing that I'll mention before I get into the plot of Killing Comentadore is um, something that I think is probably the most important thing about Murakami for me. Um, some of our listeners will know that I reference over and over that I'm not really down with magical realism, but again, Murakami breaks that rule constantly. He's constantly having his characters like go into a different world and like talk to a sheep man (laughs) and like, and do all this stuff. And the number one word for me, for Murakami of any fan is readability. Um, if Murakami came out with a 5,000 page book, I wouldn't blink and I would dive right into it and know that I was going to finish it cover to cover. Like he is so readable that it's almost like it's, it's, it's a Stephen King level of readability, but in a Japanese author, that's just telling you crazy ass stories about art and life. So, um, yeah, I mean, killing Commentadori is, is no different. I'll get into the plot of it right now. Um, some stuff about the actual book that I'm holding in my hands right now uh, I love Murakami so much that this is a guy that when a hardcover comes out, I buy it and I just deal with it. We all know we we hate hardcovers here <laughs> on the podcast, but when a new Murakami comes out, I just got to buy it. He's one of my authors that I buy the fresh copy every time. Um, I will say that the American edition of Killing Commentadore, I think, has a dog shit book cover. I think it looks so stupid. I took the book jacket off immediately, threw it in the trash. And yeah, the, the no actu- jacket required. Yeah, no jacket required. Phil. And the actual... <laughs> Phil Collins. And um, the actual book itself looks like a terrible like eighth grade science book. There's like a picture of the moon with like, a, like an eye photoshopped on top of it that has nothing to do with this book at all. So I, I'm, I'm coming after uh, Alfred Knopf, who, who published this book with one of the worst covers I've ever seen. I felt embarrassed reading it. Book, um, covers, book covers have been lazy recently. It's they are. like they really, are. really horrendously minimalist or yeah. like you know 
Actually, a, a, a book cover that I should give a shout out to is um, on one of the podcasts I did, Ali Smith's Autumn, and that book cover is just a, a, a section of a painting from David Hockney, and I love Hockney, and that uh, I literally picked up the book because of the cover. So um, kudos to to Ali Smith's Autumn. Um, nice. So let me get into Killing Commandore. What happens in any Murakami novel? Um, the the main character mysterious. is yeah mysterious shit happens. Um, the main character is um, a knock rec- on the door. Yeah, <laughs> the main character is a recently single um, male. The end of the book is that this is actually pretty um, interesting for Murakami. The very end of the book is the very beginning. So um, basically, uh, you kind of get swept up in the narrative. But what's interesting about this book is um, that. You know, from page six, it says from May until the early the following year, I lived on top of a mountain near the entrance to a narrow narrow valley. Um, And he kind of just describes right here like this is the um, the time right after he his wife left him. So what's interesting is that I almost didn't I you know, you just start reading and you go for it. And he mentions in there somewhere like this was the period right after me and my wife split up. And then once I was like 300 pages into the book, I was like, wait a second, don't they split up? And like, he talked about that in the beginning. And like, what was he talking about in the beginning? So it's definitely one of those turn back to the beginning, turn back to where you are in the middle sort of books, because um, he drops a lot of hints that you kind of just skipped over and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the plot of the book and why it's called Killing Commentadore is there's a recently um, separated uh, <clears throat> artist who is a painter. Um, I would really love I would really love to talk to somebody, um, a painter who has read this book because like you said um, earlier in this podcast with Hemingway and having experience with painting, I have a feeling that Murakami might have an experience with painting because um, the, he does a great job with kind of talking about the process. And basically what's happening is the main character is living on top of a mountain that is um, a property from his friend, like a connection through one of his friends through art school. So basically he goes to his friend and he's like, listen, man, my life fell apart. My wife, you know, left me for another man. Um, he goes on a road trip, like in the in the very beginning, kind of like around Japan, but then he ends up living on top of this mountain. And his friend from, from school had a famous father who was like a world-renowned painter. So he's basically living in this guy's house who was a very respected and renowned painter, world-renowned painter. And uh, the, the plot of the novel kicks off, like you said, something weird happens, Mark. And he finds <laughs> he finds um, a painting that the public has never seen. Who could that be? Who, who is that? Okay. Um, uh, he finds a painting in the attic of the house that the public has never seen, but that he immediately kind of knowing the body of work of uh, the master and, and the house that he was living, that he's currently living in, he knows that it's the best painting he's ever made. So basically he finds this painting that's been wrapped up for however, like 20 years or whatever, 30 years. And he has to kind of struggle with the fact that he's found one of the best paintings in Japanese history, um, but he can't really show it to anybody. Um, And it's kind of his internal dialogue with struggling about like, you know, obviously this famous painter wrapped it up for a reason. Um, 
this book came at a really important time for me personally because um, I had just left um, my job at like a big um, agency and like a big firm kind of and I was making like a big career switch at the time I was driving across the country um, I left the UK and I moved to Los Angeles and this book is just has a lot of really amazing knowledge about times of transition and what the artist is going through as he's trying to rediscover his painting. Oh, that's another thing that happens that, um, that happens in the book. That's really great. So basically after his wife leaves him, he says to himself, I'm not going to, he was a portrait painter. He was basically a guy who went to art school and he can paint a portrait of anybody accurately. So he was doing it, you know, for corporate offices, for politicians, for like whatever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's the type of videos that I was making in my career. I, I went to art school and I studied filmmaking, but then I was just filming talking heads for people on Wall Street and financial people and stuff like that. And basically this guy he moves into this house and he says i'm gonna rediscover painting and i'm not gonna paint fucking portraits um so you know he starts to he does end up painting some portraits but he's exploring it in a new way and the way that murakami kind of builds these paintings it makes it really interesting um i do feel like there are a few evolutions in this most recent novel that he's almost having a reaction to himself um, and I want to get into that a little bit because Murakami is a famous isolationist. He doesn't really um, speak with other authors or anything like in his uh, in on his Wikipedia. You'll find a line that says and it's referenced to an article that after receiving the Gunzo Award for his 1979 literary work, Hear the Wind Sing, Murakami did not aspire to meet other writers. Aside from Mary Morris, whom he briefly mentions in his memoir, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, and Joyce Carol Oates and Toni Morrison, Murakami, who was never part of a community of writers, his reason being that he was a loner and was never fond of groups, schools, or literary circles. Um, and I think that that reflects a lot in Murakami's work. I think that he is a loner. I think that if he was writing with more writers or possibly um, ingesting more of the publishing world, first of all, I think that there would be less magical realism in his books. I think that like this book, Killing Commentadore has magical realism and some crazy, like otherworldly shit happens, but you could easily edit it out of the book and it would just be a beautiful novel. It would just be great as well. So I think he has sort of almost like a, a way of fetishizing his own sort of existence and his own work. I also think that he has a kind of fuck it attitude with like, uh, you know, the main character starts to have a, um, not romantically intimate, but an intimate relationship with a young girl in his, he starts teaching painting classes and he kind of starts to paint her portrait and he gets to know her estranged father and stuff like that. But I think that Murakami has a kind of fuck it attitude towards, you know, like he'll start talking about how like he's sketching the portrait and he had to like sketch her breasts and she's like 13 and he's like, you know, he kind of like drops stuff in like that. He also has a, he has a reputation. Like there's that, there's a, there's a, someone gives an award for the worst sex scenes in literature every year. And he's yeah. on, and I he's knew on, that about this book. Yeah. I knew he, it was on the short list. Yeah. yeah he's he on the, was that just like I don't this. know if he won, but he, he's on the list every year for like writing awkward <laughs> sex scenes and stuff like that. I don't know if I find his sex scenes too awkward, but they are graphic. Like they're very sort of like, I put my penis in her vagina, you know, like that. Well, kind of I thing. mean, they're also translated. So I think it's a little, it might be unfair to, to judge the, English 
you know, yeah. translation for that. Maybe it's a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. Um, Does he have that reputation in Japan, I wonder? I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to ask some of our Japanese friends. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, I'll just circle back into saying like, Killing Commentadore for me was also interesting because I think it almost had like, remember how we were talking about Under the Dome on the podcast before? And it had sort of a mm-hmm. revitalizing effect for me on like King's career and stuff like that. And not that Murakami has ever slowed down, like he comes out with books all the time, but you know, you got to wait like four years and stuff like that. So when Killing Commentadore came out, I was like, okay, like this is going to be like a real novel. Like I'm ready for another installment of, of what he's thinking, what he's feeling. And, um, you know, it revitalizes you every time because people are so hungry for that, you know, publishing bullshit like the strange library and calling it a short novel and really what it is is you know something from his career like a long time ago so um you know he's he's just an interesting guy to follow and every time a new novel drops it really revitalizes it um and you know one thing that i will say about murakami like i said readability is key he is, you know, he, he comes from that literary tradition of you're just reading, 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 and then something really awesome happens or he words something in a certain way that is really great. Um, a quote from this book, which is like a great, he's really famous for a sort of his succinct one-liners. A quote from this book is, um, perhaps nothing can be certain in this world, but at least we can believe in something. So once you're going through the journey of all the characters and all this weird shit is happening and stuff like that, he always drops some great knowledge. Um, And another thing that I always look forward to, no matter what, is the last... I I think Murakami has a really big connection with the last line either of a chapter, but especially of a book. Um, My heart races when I'm getting to the last line of a Murakami book because (laughs) I know it's going to be nuts like i i I have this weird sort of i feel like this weird energy or this connection that i mean who knows if this is true or not but he he, first of all he has that mystery um you know and that mystery factor definitely kind of contributes to a lot of his fanfare but also you know i feel like he works on that last line a lot because every time I read like the fight, like, and you never know it too. Like he's basically always like the paragraph is just going as normal and you're, and you can see that the book is ending like halfway down the page. And then that last line just <laughs> stabs you right in the heart. And, uh, and you know, it's gonna, I know it's going to be good every time. So I'm always excited to finish a Murakami novel. Um, another thing that you said, Mark, why don't, why don't they make the whole book out of the last line? I don't That's know. Idea. Yeah. They could just publish that over. That's what they'll do next time. They'll just publish the last line of his last novel and bind it into a book. But um, uh, another thing that you mentioned before is that he's always referencing literature and especially songs. I would say in this modern age, in 2019, uh, if you're reading a Murakami book and he mentions a song, put that song on right then and there. Like that's a a tradition of mine that I do. He's probably going to be referencing some classical music and some jazz music um, that you've never heard yet. And you can dive into a world where he's just he has a really amazing taste for for jazz music, probably some stuff that you've never kind of gotten into before. And I do I do feel that he's just as careful with those selections, like when he's talking about, oh, this song was on and then I put that song on the book fits like it, whatever they they need to they need to like a, a 
they need to include that in maybe like the Kindle, like the ebook version, or maybe like the audible like audio audio book where it just starts yeah. playing when it's no. mentioned i mean every murakami awesome. book every murakami book like if it's published by whomever they should come out with you know at least a spotify playlist i think yeah. people already do that i think people already do that like you know fans already do that oh, sure yeah there's there's also a really great internet culture of when you're a murakami fan and you type in different um because another thing that he does which is really great and specific is that he'll start to talk about a piece of classical music but he'll also talk about a specific recording he'll be like by the philharmonic in 1981 like you know yeah. conducted by this person and there's a great great internet culture especially on youtube of you know the first youtube comment on all those books all those all those videos will be murakami brought me here or like murakami from you know a bird chronicle or killing commensador yeah, yeah. um so you know you're discovering other people who are who are finding all this amazing music and, and literature and art and stuff because of murakami and and i promise you every time the song fits he, he and he does a lot of pop culture too um you know he'll no, reference i mean, you, I, mean yeah. I have a bone to pick with him and you i mean you should have known that this was coming but uh in dance 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 he um he makes fun of genesis so I got yeah. the quote right here. Okay, yeah. Uh, what, did, what does he say so about just Me and Mark are huge uh, <laughs> '70s era Genesis fans and beyond. Uh, yeah. So I mean, uh, I think he he's it's main characters in like a hotel or something, and he sees a girl with like a Genesis sweatshirt on, mm -hmm. and he goes in his thoughts, he's like, Genesis, what a stupid name for a band, but because the girl had that sweatshirt on, the name seemed somehow symbolic. Genesis. Why do rock groups have overblown names like that? I fell back onto the bed with my shoes still on, closed my eyes, and the young girl's image came to me. Walkman, white fingers tapping tabletop, Genesis, melted ice, Genesis. With my <laughs> eyes shut, I could feel the alcohol warming around inside me. I pulled off my work boots, got out my clothes, and crawled under the covers. I was too tired, too drunk to feel much of anything. Uh, I, had, I waited for the woman next to me to say, had a bit too much, have we? But there was no such conversation. Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we, we obviously disagree. I think Genesis is a great band name, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's just he he has that way of doing stuff. Actually, um, in the that there's a there's um a review of Camilling, killing Commentadore in the uh, in the Guardian by Zan Brooks, and uh, you know he he was kind of lukewarm on the book, but overall, uh, like one sentence kind of jumped out at me, which goes with this whole pop culture um, reference to Murakami. He says, and I thought that this was definitely a great thing to say about Murakami. He says, Murakami, thank heaven, makes no great distinction between the high road of literary fiction and the low road of pop culture. He knows both are worth exploring and then each has its pleasures. And, you know, that's that's 100% true. And I think that that's why he's so accessible. I think that... Um, mm -hmm you know, he's just so accessible, like never, ever be afraid to pick up Murakami because, you know, he's, he's just amazing. Um, and it's really easy to read. Uh, another quick quote that I wanted to read from Killing Commentadore. It's a, it's a book about sort of reality and reality breaking down and, you know, people, you know, people come out of the painting and stuff like that. Like it has all those classic Murakami elements again, and also a lot of art therapy, like healing through art. But, um, here's a quote from the book really quick. Um, 
sometimes in life we can't grasp the boundary between reality and unreality. That boundary always seems to be shifting, as if the border between countries shifts from one day to the next depending on their mood. We need to pay close attention to that movement, otherwise we know, we won't know which side we're on. So um, Murakami's characters often find themselves on the other side of that. Um, another quick quote, just really quickly from a- another part of the book, I think that this is emblematic of Murakami, but also just a beautiful quote. Um, when it came down to it, could anything be completely correct or completely incorrect? We lived in a world where rain might fall 30% or 70% of the time. Truth was probably no different. Could there be 30, there could be 30% truth or 70% truth. Um, which I agree with. Um, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting. Um, something that I will definitely um, tweet out uh, for this episode too is something that I've really been meaning to watch on YouTube, but I haven't watched it yet. There's a full length 51 minute documentary called In Search of Haruki Murakami in Search of This Elusive Writer on YouTube that seems really interesting. I think it's like basically a guy trying to track down Murakami, but also just interviewing his fans and just different <laughs> literary experts and stuff. Because basically the, the basic concept behind Murakami right now is that uh, he lives in isolation. You know, you can find him, you know, running 10Ks and writing novels and that's about it. Um, <laughs> and he doesn't really give interviews and stuff. So I can't wait to watch that. And um, yeah, I would I mean, say if he runs that much. I bet you could find him. Oh, yeah, definitely. Just, you know, just start like walking around Japan. You'll eventually find him. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Killing Commentadore, I definitely recommend it. But I just recommend Murakami, like follow him. A lot of people read his books in order. A lot of people get really obsessed with him. I'll probably do Kafka on the Shore at some point. But it, it that one is is definitely um, deserves a really deep dive. And I need to read it with a pen by my side. So not if I do it first. Oh, shit. Race to Kafka <laughs> on the Shore. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, also I didn't know that he only started after in, or in his thirties or whatever, but I mean, it makes sense now, but it gives us, gives hope to some of us, you know, non wonderkins where you just, yes, maybe go to, go to some more, go to some more baseball games and stuff. You'll have a awakening. Yeah. Just, just stare into the distance and be like, you know what? I'm just going to go write several thousand <laughs> stories and words and novels. And, um, are we sure he d- didn't get hit by a foul ball or something yeah maybe like, i mean he's a really inspirational guy he really is sort yeah. of like yo just you know like he's he's kind of like that stone wall of like listen are you gonna write or not you know <laughs> like <laughs> yeah maybe, kind of maybe he'd been mulling it over for like 20 years you know yeah for sure oh and i also wanted to say one final note that i have in my notes here um, closing up Killing Commentadore is there's a character that the artist eventually meets on top of the mountain, uh, a, a very mysterious guy, um, uh, a very mysterious Murakami character, uh, like a really rich guy kind of thing. And um, Mark, you're probably the only person who will know this reference, but I definitely in my brain cast him as Hiro Mizushima, also known as Kamen Rider Kabuto, the guy who plays <laughs> Kabuto. <laughs> He was a hundred percent like that's him, like that's the guy in this book, like no question. Um, the character's a little bit older than than Hiro Mizushima is, but um, I aged him. <laughs> yep, a uh, kid show for yes. anyone. Yes, yeah, 
No, you know what? I actually discovered a lot that people know what Common Rider is. And actually, you're going to freak out about you. I've never told you this story, but I met um, I met a Japanese woman when I was at a wedding abroad and her dad was one of the Common Riders like from the 70s. Really? And I started to freak out. I was like, I was like, you know, because every time you bring up Common Rider, you're like, yeah, there's this thing called Common Rider. No one knows what it is. But you know what? Sometimes people do know what it is. <laughs> well, I mean, I knew it there. There's a. There was a 90s show, Mask Rider, which was the U.S. version. Right. People might people might know that. Well, you Power know, Rangers like is is nostalgia. derived from yeah. that from that genre. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, anyway, that's awesome. Anyway, yeah, that's about it. Um, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, this has been Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the Podcast. You can also email us sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Give us any comments, suggestions, corrections whatever you're feeling, and I'll see you next time. See ya.